This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. When you plant a church, discipleship does not necessarily happen. But when you disciple, church plants always happen. Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and I'm a small church pastor, and welcome to this episode of Can This Work in a Small Church? My podcast guest today is Peyton Jones, and the subject is church planting for everyone. Peyton is a church planter and church planting specialist. He's written several books, most recently, Church Plantology, The Art and Science of Planting Churches, which is the basis for our conversation today. Peyton and I will talk about a lot of issues regarding church planting, but mostly about how most of our common perceptions of church planting are actually built on a faulty foundation. So even if you're not a church planter, don't let that stop you from listening. There's a lot in this for every church leader. And don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and an answer to the question, can this work in a small church? Well, welcome, Peyton, to the podcast. It's good to have you on with us. Thank you, Carl. Good to be here. You have written a book uh, called Church Plantology, and it is a hefty tome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie. There was 800 pages of a manuscript submitted to Zondervan, and Zondervan said, "Uh, thanks, Peyton, but no, you have to chop it down to 400. It still clocks in at nearly 500 pages. Yeah. Oh, I, as a writer, I know shorter is harder than longer, but it it's thorough. There's no empty space in there because obviously you're chopping it down from 800 and it's so practical, so helpful. I got it in the mail and I'm not a church planter. I'm a guy who was called to existing churches and I've been you know, 29 years in my church that was existing when I showed up, but have a real understanding of the need for church planting and appreciation for those who do that. So give us a little bit of your background, how you came to be a church planter and how the book Church Plantology came about. Well, I think you and I have a lot of similarities. I mean, you are definitely an advocate for small churches. And I think the way that I approach church planning is definitely very similar. I'm not a large launch guy at all. I'm a missionary. So I think in very brass tacks, I think in very first century principles, and I'm bivocational. So growing this big thing and all the bells and whistles doesn't apply. But I started in Huntington Beach, California, at a church now known as Refuge. Back then it was Calvary, Huntington Beach. I was on my way to becoming a mega church pastor and God loved me and had a plan for my life. And thankfully it did not include that. He called me to uh, mission work. I ended up in Wales and Martin Lloyd-Jones's Dockside Presbyterian Church, where I was promptly beat up, which happens in a town like that, uh, by a rugby player on the juice, but I was the evangelist. And I helped them plan a church out. Of course, you know, over the years, I had been part of church planning teams in New Zealand and uh, Hungary. So I found myself overseas planning churches, but still did not see myself as a church planner. Um, It wasn't until I took a Baptist church, a small little church of about 20, 30 people that hadn't had a pastor in 20 years, that eventually we started accidentally planting churches. I thought I was doing evangelism with college students. 
we were planning churches. And eventually I planted accidentally in a Starbucks and that grew to about 50 unbelievers talking about Jesus. And I was on my way back home to America and didn't want to do it. But five years later, I finally did return, planted in Long Beach in a park there downtown and uh, just kept helping others. I, I finally realized in that Starbucks, I was a church planner, but over the years I've trained for North American Mission Board. I started Church Planner Magazine, uh, started a number of church planning podcasts and uh, wrote a few books like Church Zero, Reaching the Unreached, and now Church Plantology. And that's that's my truth as I know it. That gives some serious credibility to what you're writing here, because uh, first of all, it's so biblical. You start with the biblical text uh, you take a look at it in ways that I haven't seen others look at it, but it also comes out of your very real life experience where you you didn't go into it for the glory. I don't know what church planter who does. <laughs> <laughs> the money, the fame, and the power. Yeah, there we go. Uh, but you kind of <laughs> found yourself, hey, wait a minute, this is a thing I do, and maybe it's a thing I'm called to do. And I love that part of your story. Well, I want to walk you through a bunch of questions. And as I was reviewing your book, because I actually did read the whole thing, all 400 plus wow. pages of it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we are not going to make it out of chapter one today because in just the first chapter, you really lay out everything. And that's really what a podcast is kind of introduces people to it. Plus in that first chapter, there are a handful of wow moments, including starting out with an, Oh no, he didn't moment. <laughs> Ooh, what <laughs> was that on page two? So let's start <laughs> there. Page two, you bring up, you know, illustration from dead poet society, of Mr. Keating's take out your textbook and rip out that first page in which th they give a boring assessment of what poetry is, right? And yes. rip it out. We've got to unlearn those things so we can relearn other things, right? And then out of that, you put some fictional words in, in a similar character who might be talking about planting churches where you say this, finally, he looks at them with that gleam in his eyes. Now, my class, you will learn to think for yourselves. Much of what we believe about church planting is because we've inherited a system that is built on something that no longer works, the church growth movement. This is the, oh, no, he didn't moment when I read it, right? <laughs> and this is when we knew we'd be friends, Carl. Yeah, exactly. Even as the church is sinking in the West, it continues to cling to this failed movement like a life-saving ring made of iron. Much of what is called church planting is really church growth packaged as an ecclesiastical, as an as ecclesial business startup. Okay, we got to talk about that paragraph. Right. What is it about the church growth movement that is not going to work going forward in church planting? Or maybe did it work before and it's not going to work now? Or has it never worked? What's your take on that? I really like what Alan Hurst says. He says the church is designed to accomplish uh, exactly what it's accomplishing. In other words, the design is wrong. So church planning growth movement, I, I spell out in the book a little bit later, the church growth movement is what happens when you leave an evangelist unchecked. I, of course, believe in the APEST functionality of leadership, which shows that we're a mixed bag and we're a team sport. So I'm one of many, you know, I, I might be more apostolic with a little A. I got to give that caveat there that I'm just a missionary. That's just a fancy. That's a New Testament word for missionary. I'm just a missionary. So I plant churches and move on. I don't stay. You don't want me being your pastor. Long term, I start to smell like the old banana in the closet. But at the beginning, I am ripe and bold and dang it, I'm bright yellow and I plant churches. But as time goes on, you know, those other gifts, those other people on my team, their gifts start to wax as mine 
starts to wane. But what we do in the body of Christ is we split into these different areas. So the prophetic type leaders tend to gravitate towards Pentecostal charismatic movements. Uh, the apostolics, we just all hit the mission field or just go do something like start up a business and just start ministering to people where we're at, being catalysts and creating community and kingdom culture wherever we go. The evangelists, you know, they, I make fun of them and I pick on them, Carl. They're hard to get along with. Um, we're, the, the rise and fall of Mars Hill right now, that big podcast, oh, yeah. is really telling you this is what happens when an evangelist does not have people around them to balance them. So to answer your question, yes, the teachers go to Calvary Chapel, word-based movements, reform movements. So we split. But the body of Christ, we're all meant to be together, right? We were uh, in the missional uh, movement, the missional communities movement. That was a bunch of shepherds. That was a shepherding movement. So when you find, you know, the body of Christ fragmenting, everybody grabs their piece of the elephant and says, this is the right way. And I, I think what happened during the church growth movement was it was the evangelists grabbing hold of the elephant and saying, this is success. Well, the prophetic leader stood back and said, well, I remember coming from uh, the mega church world. And I remember when our movement was small, people would lay hands on each other and pray for one another. And people would, would really get involved and there'd be like intense prayer. And I, I would occasionally hear someone bust out like a word of prophecy. When the size happened, all that stopped. And I remember looking back thinking, I saw someone healed and we were not a crazy church. We were just this tame little thing that met in a school, 50 people, but it was a family. And we actually saw life change happen. And so, you know, those that were over in the prophetic uh, leadership slice would say, well, we lost something as we grew. Those that are in the shepherding would say, we used to be a family. Those in the teaching might say, well, the teaching is good, but it's a little watered down now because we want more numbers. Uh, the mission might have been lost. That little family church might have done incredible things. And so I would just say the church growth movement was the evangelist. And each, each of those different apes leaders just to keep it controversial like i do if you took any one of those different styles of leaders each one of them comes with a price tag if you let any one of them go unchecked it starts looking bad i mean i could spell that out but i'll offend your entire audience and you do spell it out well in the book you walk through a whole bunch of that and for, for those who are unfamiliar with apest is from the fivefold ministry gifts apostle prophet evangelist shepherd and teacher those five gifts need to be operating together for a healthy church rather than simply being led by any one of them that just simply goes off on its own. When you do that, you end up with imbalance. Mm. So basically your take is you're just anti-church growth. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I, you know, I don't mind. I, I, I bring I bring it up because I guarantee you some people who heard that opening paragraph, that's what they came away with. Yeah. You have issues with the church growth movement and that there are downsides to it. But some are going to walk away going, well, I guess he's just anti-church growth. No, I'm not. You know, it, it's funny because what I'm anti is um, what Exponential would call the level three type church, which is a church that only seeks to grow by addition, just by size rather than multiplying. So when, when you look at even, you know, because we would all agree, the first thing that the Holy Spirit was dropped a bomb on Jerusalem and a church of thousands was born overnight, right? So you look at that and you go, okay, so uh, God's not anti, you know, large churches or, or right. large movements, 
But that wasn't the goal. In fact, they, the Holy Spirit and his wisdom knew that they were going to multiply. They were going to spread out. The Apostle Paul was going to rise up. Uh, he was going to hit that church, man, the early church. Like, I'm dating myself here, but Gallagher hitting a watermelon with a sledgehammer. And the seeds of the gospel were going to go splattering all over the map of the Mediterranean. And what's great about that is, you know, if you look at like Antioch, what happened? You know, the apostles are camping out. They're the only ones that says who stay behind. Everybody else gets scattered, but they stay in Jerusalem. They hunker in the bunker. And as they're doing that, they they say, hey, we heard these reports. There's a church, an unauthorized church outside of Jerusalem up in Antioch. We better send Barnabas up there to check it out. Well, what had happened? Acts 2.42 those that met together daily in the, in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer, sharing their possessions, that really well-discipled bunch of believers, when you spread them out, they couldn't help but plant churches because they were so well-discipled. And so what I argue in the book is, so it's not size that's the problem. It's actually the intentionality of the church. If the church's goal is to, to grow big, that's certainly not what Jesus said when he gave the Great Commission. He didn't say, hey, you will grow big. Go plant churches and grow them large. He basically said, go make disciples, go into all the world. doing like So there's an outward trajectory. And before he ascends, he tells the apostles, start with Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So they had their outer circle, right? We have our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then we have our ends of the earth. So we're meant to spread outward, not build upward. And of course, I wrote a book called Church Zero, which when that got published, that's how I first heard of you. People said, you need to read The Grasshopper Myth. Yeah. You and Carl would get along. I had people telling me to read Church Zero too at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not anti-growth. It's anti-multiplication, like non-multiplication. That's what I'm more concerned about. Uh, if you're going to be big, great but that should never be the goal. The goal should be to keep multiplying outward rather than building upward. Yeah. Again, still in chapter one, you, you very clearly say that Jesus never called us to plant churches. Yes. He called us to make disciples. And then you talk about the cause and effect that we sometimes treat church plants as the cause for discipleship when in fact it should be seen as the effect of discipleship. Am I getting that right? And if so, unpack that for us a little. 100%. You know, uh, Ralph Moore said it really, really well. He said, when you plant a church, discipleship does not necessarily happen. But when you disciple, church plants always happen. And after I had written the book, I got approached by a very large mission organization that came to me and their their specialty is to translate discipleship tools into multiple countries around the world and i was working with them on another project and they said hey peyton can you come over here because look we're in the church planning game now we are not a church planning organization we didn't mean to but we have church plants popping up all over the place simply because we've trained people how to disciple and because of that we're now a church planning organization. We have no idea how to train people, how to church plant. So could you come over? Well, they got the DNA. They can't help but be a church planning movement. And I wished I had had that for the book because I could have told countless stories. In future, I'll be doing a church plantology podcast that will actually unpack these stories from all around the world that actually show these principles at work that just naturally lead to planting churches. So it sounds like what you're saying is if the goal is to plant 
churches, then it's like in the 90s when they talked about a vision statement and you create a vision statement and you got to constantly tell people over and over and over and over again, drive them crazy with the vision statement until it finally gets through. And mm. that always kind of struck me as backwards. Like if I've got to just simply drive this statement into people, then maybe it's not coming out of their hearts to begin with. And same thing, if I've got, hmm. if I've got a church planting emphasis and I've got to try to convince churches to plant churches and people to plant churches, that seems backwards. On the other hand, what you're saying is if people are truly being discipled in a New Testament manner, yeah. church planting will naturally result from healthy disciple making. If we are making disciples who become disciple makers, they can't help but plant churches. Absolutely. And one of the things that I do in chapter one is I contrast church planning with church starting. So church starting, we, we all know, like this, you talked about the church growth movement. This is the recipe of planting churches or starting churches. I don't even call it church planning because the New Testament knows nothing of this. There's nothing, there's no link you can trace between what Paul did or what Jesus was trained in the 12 to do or what the 12 themselves did to what this is about to become. I, I, you, you'll recognize this. This is what you do. This is how you start a church. First thing, grab a flashy church name, okay? Get your church name, picture it in your head. Right now, build a sexy church logo, branding. It's all about the branding, baby. Then build your flashy website. Now, let's talk about advertising, marketing, and so it goes. And so then you rent the space, you get a bunch of disgruntled Christians together, you play musical chairs with other churches, and boom, that is church starting as we know it. And it no longer works. It doesn't matter if you're the sexier, flashier, faster version of this stupid church next to you, you know, those old fuddy duddies over there. It doesn't matter because this next generation doesn't care. So when you say that no longer works, you're not just saying that it doesn't produce a biblical result. You're saying it doesn't even produce the result that we are intending it to produce. It doesn't even bring in the numbers anymore. No, culture's moved on. You know, society, it's its really interesting to me to note what's happened with younger people. Like, and, and you know this, like we all have, you know, kids and I can't just watch a movie anymore. If a young person's watching a movie, they are on that device talking about it. They're looking at not just Walking Dead, they're on Talking Dead, and they are texting and they're Twittering and they're TikToking about it nonstop. There is the social media layer where interaction is the key. Now, when I look at where culture's at, the only place where you're told to sit down, shut up, and pay attention is at the DMV or church right? Yeah, That's it. it. And so uh, cultures moved on. And yet when I read the New Testament, I see this amazing uh, formula for interaction and community and these 30 something one another's. How do you do those, Carl, staring at the back of somebody else's head sitting in rows? But the early church was the place, and I think the church as we know is probably the place that we have the greatest opportunity to rethink how we meet together. For example, when I planted out of Starbucks, I was just planning to do a Dan Brown Da Vinci Code reading group. I was working on the bar at Starbucks, finishing up my MA in theology, thinking I'm moving home. And people came through that bar because people need God and coffee, good coffee, you know, and this was Wales. They made great tea and terrible coffee. So here I am <laughs> serving God and coffee to the masses and people would come through and they would hear my accent. We start a conversation. What are you doing here? Well, I'm a minister. Where's your church? Well, I don't have one right now. I'm finishing up a degree and I'm coming home. And they would say, man, what do you think 
because this was in Borders books, may they rest in peace. They would say, look, what do you think of Dan Brown Da Vinci Code? I just read it. And I thought, man, I, I can't speak to it because I haven't read it. Now, we all know it's bunk, right? I mean, you read that thing and you go, really? That's the best you got? That's all you got? Dan Brown? Come on. This is the big bad wolf. So I read this thing. I think, man, I'm going to throw a reading group. Got a New Testament scholar from the local seminary. We threw this group. 30 unbelievers turn up. Wow. They're talking all night. I shut it down. At the end of the night, it was a one night only. They said, can we do it again? And I said, no, no, we're not going to do it again. I mean, we, we kind of dealt with it, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, damn Brown, you know, that guy's bunk. And these are all unbelievable. That New Testament scholar, five minutes, just dismantled him. Yeah. And they said, we'd love to do it again. And somebody said something. They said, I've never had an experience where I could drink good coffee, eat good cake, keep in mind this in Wales, and talk about Jesus and God and stuff. And nobody yelled at me. Wow. And I went, wow. So what they wanted was a conversation. Well, you look at Paul, right? Paul goes into the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews, right? That's another way of saying he had a conversation with them. And I started realizing synagogue style evangelism, this, this conversational approach, when that actually became a church plant, we made it interactive. So we didn't sit in rows. We took everything and transplanted it over from Starbucks. I'm not saying this is the way to do church. Right. I'm just saying it was one way to do something interactive. So uh, whether your church, maybe it's a, a small church plant, sit in a circle and have a time where the preacher asks questions and people feed off or break them into groups. We actually did what we did in Starbucks. We had little Ikea coffee tables. We had uh, half circles and I had about eight groups of eight. Right. So 64 people. My math is right. My math is terrible. You got it right. <laughs> okay. I was a little worried. <laughs> you never know with me. How many people go to your church? Waiting 5 million. My math might be off, but a little bit. then again, I read Grasshopper Myth. That doesn't matter. <laughs> but, but here's the deal, right? So uh, 64 people total could have come. And I, I'll never forget a guy came in and he was looking at what happened. Now, keep in mind, like this thing was just growing. Service went an hour and 40 minutes because wow. we had 25 minutes of discussion and the thing just kept growing. The only people that got cheesed off at it were Christians. But this pastor came in and he was looking one day and he experienced the whole service. He said, that was amazing. He goes, but you know, you could get so many more people in here if you put rows in. I mean, that's a goal, right? To get more people in. Yeah. And I looked at yeah. him and said, no, that's never been my goal, brother. Never. If I got to plant another church, we'll plant it. But what's happening here has wrecked these people for the rest of their lives for anything non-interactive. Yeah, no, that's huge. Which really segues well into, let's talk about the title of this podcast, which is, you know, can this work in a small church? So what would you say to, uh, do you have any pieces of advice for leaders of small congregations that would say, oh, we're too small to be church planters. That's not something that can work for us because we've got a picture in our head of, you know, we've got to peel off 20, 30% of our people to go over there and we've got to be able to afford a building. And we've, right, we've got this old paradigm. When mm -hmm. you were talking about, you know, what you got to do is get the website and so on and all the big stuff up for the big bang opening. I immediately went back in my head to the nineties. There was a short era in the nineties where there was a burst in church planting of doing the robocalls, and they had it figured out that 1% of people will actually show up for a church service from robocalls. So if you want 200 on your first Sunday, you got to make 20,000 robocalls. And they showed the numbers. It was one of those things where that's church starting maybe, but it's not church planting. And in most cases, it wasn't even church starting. It was crowd gathering because yeah. 
the second Sunday might be 10% of the first Sunday. And it might just be the core group that was starting. And all of a sudden they're looking around going, what happened to all these calls? Well, you called them to come for one service. 1% of them came for the one service and now they're done because they don't need a cool Sunday morning show. They'd rather sleep in or what they really are preferring is something what you're talking about, which is an actual relationship conversation about important things where their questions are allowed, first of all, (laughs) where their questions are put into the mix and you don't provide overly quick answers to it. And that wasn't as needed by young people in the nineties as it is today, but today I don't see how you're going to get away. Well, I was going to say, get away with the old church planting style. You can get away with it because you can still gather a crowd. But if you're really wanting something that even closely resembles a New Testament church, Mm. I don't know how you do it by looking for a building first, building a website first, getting the cool logo first. I'm not against buildings. I'm not against websites. I'm not against logos. But if that's what you think is going to get your foot in the door, you're starting on the wrong foot. You've got to start relationally. So if that's the case, what would you say then to small church pastors this feels like something that really is uh, is going into the strength of the healthy small church. Absolutely. I mean, to me, my favorite part of a church plant is when it's small. Um, when it gets to a certain size, I, I, I'm always training up church planners and breaking off groups. So you have the micro church movement right now. We call those cogs. Some people might call them missional communities or small groups with a purpose. We would do things like we would say, hey, we're, we're going to meet with people in the community. Let's, uh, let's find what you guys love to do. I've always believed that old quote that says, the world doesn't need Christians to just go out there and trudge into evangelism. What the world needs is for Christians to be fully alive in their gifts, practicing them with great joy. When that happens, like like evangelism is not a one size fits all. There's a your spiritual gift. When you use your spiritual gifts and you find out what they are, you're immediately evangelistic, right? You can't help it. So if your gift is serving, you go serve people. Like I think this is the time for the healthy small church because people are looking for community. You know, the 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 young couple, you know, this next generation, generation Y or whoever it is. They're having babies and they're thinking, I need community for this baby because they've had community online. Community is part of their cultural values now. So a healthy small church has community built in. They love, I always tell people, old people in a church plant are like gold bricks to me. Because if I can find an older person who has a bunch of time, right, um, who says, hey, I look, I worked professionally most of my life. And now I'm here and I just want to go on one last hurrah. I want one last mission, Caleb, one last mountain before I die. Tell you what's rad about old people is they got wisdom. They got a bit of insight. They've been around. Not too much is going to shock them. They know how to love on an addict. They may never have worked rehab like I did back when I was a psych nurse. But I tell you what, they know how to love people. And that never fails. So the healthy small church has all this stuff. So we would do these cogs. We would just say, just find what you want to do. You know, so we had a couple chefs that said, hey, the mayor's asking uh, if we can throw cooking classes for single unwed mothers. So let's throw a cooking class for that. So we work with the local authorities. This is in Europe. And we threw cooking classes. Bunch of young single mothers got saved. People used their gifts in this. People couldn't wait for this to come back around 
every other week. On the off week, we'd have a Bible study and we'd raise people up to teach and lead. And these, we had a film club, we had a reading group, we had all these just crazy things. There was a fitness group, there was a soccer club. There were all these different things that people did. And for a healthy small church, you don't need a bunch of these. Just come together and I I call it affinity-based mission. Find what you all are kind of passionate about. Maybe have a couple of these and do them. If, If you love to read, Andrew and I, my wife, will occasionally go to Barnes & Noble and join that reading group and infiltrate it. And, you know, we don't take it over. We don't just throw Jesus in every every other statement, but we'll start building relationship and doing that. And that's because we love reading groups, right? We planted a church off a reading group. So for the healthy small church right now, I really do think this is your time. And any healthy small church even beyond just the Sunday gathering, you know, these are those cogs, micro churches, whatever. But on the Sunday gathering itself, they could actually just incorporate a little bit of discussion. Some people move over to the fellowship hall after the service. They could do that too. You know, they could just incorporate it. But what we found is during our service, if we incorporated that time, uh, even if it's 15 minutes for discussion, people start sharing their heart. They start sharing their soul. People don't get listened to out there. There's not a lot of safe spaces for people to share stuff. If you're a healthy small church and you're a family, you can do that. And you can start knowing people by name and asking about their lives and getting involved. And what happens in those little groups is discipleship. Yeah. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. But what you're talking about is such a a structural shift. I want to say it out loud because I know there are a lot of small church pastors and leaders listening to this and going, Mm. if I were to tell my congregation that we're going to have listening groups on a Sunday morning, you know, they're still sitting in bolted down pews (laughs) and we've got arguments over color of the carpet. That is a, a step too far. I want to say it. I get that too. Yeah. Yeah. Because we both understand that saying this and understanding the value of it is one thing actually 
taking the multiple difficult steps that it takes to get there is something else. And so, but if we aren't seeing it as even a possibility, we'll never even begin to make the small steps to get there. We will sit where we are in the rows that we're in fighting this, the old battles that we're continuing to fight and not even seeing a potential way out of this to a better way. If we don't at least hear crazy people like Peyton talk this way. Yeah. And listen, this is not the way it's a way. This is just the way that it worked out for us because of how we started. And I, you know, the book is subtitled the art and science of planting churches. The science are those principles in the new Testament. There are principles, but the art is how you decide to apply those principles. And you're, you know, we we talk about, Jesus talked about wine and wineskins and your wineskin may not allow for you to do some of these things you have a structural constraint and and that's okay to be honest like carl you have to know this and your audience should probably know this i am a lot more high church than anybody even knows i was saved and went to an episcopal church because i could get there easily i'm not an episcopalian but that was the church i first learned to worship in so i got no problem with traditional churches, with churches that are, I served in Wales for, uh, gosh, 10 years in Presbyterian churches. You know, you had the hymn sandwich. I've been a Baptist. I've been all over and it's been all over me, but I've worked within those constraints. And so I understand in some of the denominational uh, settings and different places, I haven't always been a free radical. And I actually will probably this next time plant Anglican. Everybody thinks I'm more punk rock than I am. Yeah. And one of the things I love that you do, we will get for this one step out of chapter one, you do talk about when you talk about the Apostle Paul, you are very clear in saying, take a look at the Apostle Paul. Unlike Jesus, who never made mistakes, Paul was was fully human and not fully God. (laughs) And so he did make mistakes. And you actually talk about basically Paul's church planting ideas really came from trial and error and a whole lot of error along the way. So he didn't start out with a perfect idea. We've got this picture, this halo picture of the early church that they did everything perfectly. Well, if they had, we wouldn't, half of the New Testament books wouldn't have been written if the church was doing everything perfectly. And the apostle Paul didn't do it. So if Paul can do it by trial and error, then it's okay for us to experiment and do it by trial and error. And if this doesn't work, then something else works. And one of the things I love about church plantology, the way you lay it out is you're not giving us a method or a system. You are showing us the biblical principles that include trial and error, that include multiple different methods and multiple different systems. And then you say, find the system, find the the way that works in your particular context with a recognition that the context that works this year in your church for church planting might not even work next year, let alone in the church down the street. So it really has to come from the gifting and the moment that God has given you right now, rather than trying to apply a system like robocalling or like setting up all of the websites and everything else. There are all kinds of different ways God does this, and we simply need to be open to that possibility. I'm so glad you brought that up because fads irritate me. Fads and trends irritate me to no end. You know, I I, I feel like, and I, I did say this in the beginning of the book that, you know, pioneers are out, you know, inventing new things, inventors are inventing... But scientists, which the book is, it's church plantology because it it approaches it from uh, the stance of 
these things existed in church history. A lot of these principles, I, there's a heavy emphasis on church history where you can find yep. some of these New Testament principles again um, resurfacing during periods of kingdom expansion. But I, a scientist only discovers what's always been there. They're rediscovering is kind of, uh, they believe it was Kepler or Newton who said, I'm just thinking God's thoughts after him. Yeah. Well, rediscovering is the first word of every single chapter in the book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of an it's kind of an emphasis for you. <laughs> yes, it, it is because you know I'm not smart and I, I, I definitely don't want anyone listening to anything that that I make up. Well, I'll tell you that right now. But it's basically that yeah. idea that I am still I apologize at the beginning of the book. Hey, I wish I knew more knew more. These are principles that I've uncovered, but I'm still learning. And this is the great thing. Tracing Paul's learning curve. God allows us to struggle. He allows us to get it wrong. He allows us to wrestle with the thorn in the flesh in ministry. He allows us to be weak so he can be strong. He allows us to be at that place where Paul was. And I I literally wept when I wrote this part. I broke down in my office writing this. I really felt what Paul was feeling. I've been where Paul was, where he's so discouraged that he just crumples in a heap in Corinth. Uh, because he's been driven from town to town to town, and he's left Thessalonica and Berea, and he, he's been stoned in Lystra and Derby, Lystra and Iconium, and he finally gets to Corinth, and he just just goes back to working with his hands for a while. You know, he despairs of life. There's just this dark night of the soul for Paul, and all of us go through that. I have been there. I have been through that, and I know with small churches sometimes that's going to be something that you're going to go through at times. And, you know, really, I think even if you're not a church planner, what's great about this book is you, I've heard repeatedly people say, you don't have to be a church planner to read this book. This is just almost like a framework for ministry yeah, um, because I'm trying to train church planners to, to much of this is old school. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting old school people here um, that are my heroes. Uh, you know, you, you don't serve at Lloyd Jones's church, right? <laughs> without, without having some old school heroes. But, you know, what I'm trying to get this next generation to do is to realize others have gone before you. They have lit the torch and there were things they discovered. And we've got to rediscover these things, yeah. whether it's from the first century or in parts of church history where they grabbed it again. My hope is that this generation will grab hold of those things that are timeless principles that not only allow you to minister in a church any place amongst anyone at any time, but plan a church among anyone at any place at any time. Absolutely. All right. We're going to segue from that. There's so much more we could cover, but we're going to segue from that to the lightning round questions that everybody who is Ooh. on is subject to having to answer. All righty. Nice. First of all, what are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years, and how have you adapted to it? I will go back to something that I recently heard Alan Hirsch say. He said that for every 100 churches that closed during the pandemic, 1,000 small groups opened. And that to me was very empowering and very encouraging because my uh, one of the things I tell people is once you've cracked getting every believer awoken in their gifts, you've cracked church planning, you've cracked sustainability, you've cracked mission. So that to me, I, I have seen this trend. I, I believe that people were awoken during COVID to realize I can actually be a player. I can be in the game and not just be a spectator. Yeah. Uh, I think this is a bigger generational shift than any of us are aware of yet. 
Mm. Uh, we still have to see this play out. Yeah, absolutely. Question number two, what free resource like an app or a website has helped you lately that you'd recommend for small church ministry? Ooh, free app or resource. Well, I, I will tell you, uh, there is a disclosure here. I work for an app called Through the Word, which is 10-minute Bible chapter summaries of every chapter in the Bible, aimed primarily at youth people, but um, it gets hundreds of thousands of, of listens per day. But that tool for me, I, I went to seminary, and some of the guys I serve with this on this app are crazy gifted, and they have just read the scripture for decades. And I think, I went to seminary and paid for that. And you just got this by reading the Bible a bunch? Okay. <laughs> but uh, but that that would be the free, free app. Yeah. It would be uh, through the word. It's an right. app. It's free. We will put that in the show notes. Uh, number three, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? Oh, wow. That would come from uh, Peter Jeffrey, who was Lloyd-Jones's protege. He was a guy that mentored me. He used to tell me when I was a young man, he would always say, keep your head down, just keep preaching the gospel. And believe it or not, it, as much as that is not a popular message, I can look back on many times where I did not take his advice and I thought, I'll go fix that problem and uh, made a complete mess of things. And I wished I had just kept my head down and preached the gospel. There we go. Yeah, it's hard to get better advice than that. And then the last one is this. What's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? Something tells oh. me, something tells me, given your experience, you may have more than one. <laughs> well, having planted in urban Long Beach, yeah. all in, uh, there, there was a the knife fight at one point. There was the man claiming to be uh, the next senator. Uh, psychiatric uh, nursing definitely came in handy. But there was one particular day where uh, a pit bull bit one of our Sunday school teachers uh, during the service, because people would bring their pit bulls. We, we had people from MS-13. We had people that had spent 38 years in prison. It was rough. But on that particular day, someone also made change from the offering. And uh, yeah, that was the day that we had the knife fight just, just before the service started out in front. And I broke it up. And as I was breaking it up in the middle of it, my daughter and my wife walked around the corner. My daughter was about five years old. And uh, every time froze as I met my wife's gaze. <laughs> wow. I mean, come on. If you don't have at least one knife fight, are you really church planting anyway? Come yes, on. yes. And you can <laughs> you can read about some of that. Some of those, uh, the, my second book is called Reaching the Unreached, Becoming yep. Raiders of the Lost Art. And a lot of that stuff was in there. So I knew that I knew those stories were familiar. I was thinking it was from church plantology, but no, it was from, from that one. Yeah, I remember that one. Hey, uh, how can people find you online if they want more information on anything that we've been talking about? Yeah, they can go to ministryninja.com. I also do the Ministry Ninja podcast with my wife and uh, a Welsh church planter. So uh, you will hear some Welshness. But uh, on top of that, you can go to newbreednetwork.org, uh, which is our church planning network. Great. And all of that will be in the show notes. Peyton, I appreciate your passion for the church. I appreciate your passion for planting. I appreciate your willingness to say difficult things that need to be said. And I appreciate the fact that you aren't stuck with one particular method or mode, but we simply want to be open to where the spirit of God leads all of us and that discipleship is key. So thank you for sharing all of that with our audience today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for your message, Carl. Over the years, it, it has needed to be proclaimed. And I appreciate you and your faithfulness and just speaking uh, into the church world that I'm trying to plant in, but you trying to keep that sanity. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks. 
Well, Peyton has such a passion for the church, but I love that he has his priorities in order, that it's about biblical principles before business ideas. It's about listening to where God is leading you, not trying to copy what others are doing. And it's about making disciples before planting churches. The difference between starting churches and planting churches for me was such a big takeaway, both from the book and from our conversation today. So can this work in a small church? Yes. If we're making disciples, a lot of small churches who didn't think they could plant actually can, and a lot of existing churches can actually learn something about our own church situation by applying these so old they're new church planting principles from scripture into our current congregations. So yes, this can work in a small church, but there are a few things we need to keep in mind. First of all, we need to see the difference between church starting and church planting. It's easy to start a a church. It's easy to gather a crowd. It's longer term, slower and smaller to plant a church, but it lasts longer too. Secondly, we have to abandon any methods that may have worked in the past, but don't anymore. All the way from old traditions that you might have held denominationally to fairly recent things that have become traditions out of the church growth movement. Just because it's a new tradition doesn't mean it's any more valid than an old one. And just because it's an old tradition doesn't mean it needs to be abandoned. It simply needs to be abandoned if it's not working anymore. And then finally, we need to think like explorers and discoverers of God's principles, not inventors of new ideas. I think this is where all the trendiness comes from and all the fads come from. When we're trying to create something, when we're trying to invent something new. Instead, what has God done? What is God doing? And let's uncover that and go along with where God already is. If you'd like to become a Patreon partner for as little as $3 a month and help put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most, check out our Patreon link in the show notes. Do you want a transcript of this episode? It will be available within a few days of the podcast air date at christianitytoday.com slash carlvaders. Find the link in the show notes. This episode was produced and edited by Veronica Beaver. Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The podcast logo is by Solomon Joy of joyetic.com. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I'm a small church pastor.